Welcome to B2B Marketers on a Mission, a podcast for change makers where we question the conventional, debunk marketing myths, provide actionable tips, think differently, disrupt industries, and take your marketing to a new level. From improving your campaigns to making you a better marketer, these are the inspirational stories that will help us change the way we think and approach B2B marketing one conversation at a time. This podcast is brought to you by Einblick Consulting, helping you to stand out in the market and drive revenue to your B2B business. And now your host, Christian Klepp. Okay, folks, welcome everyone to this episode of B2B Marketers on a Mission. This is the show where we help you to question the conventional, think differently, disrupt your industry, and take your marketing to new heights. This is your host, Christian Klepp, and today I am joined by someone on a mission to break from the mold in B2B content marketing. So coming to us from Carlsbad, California, USA, Casey Hill, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Christian. I'm excited to be here. Likewise, man. This uh, this interview has been uh, long in the making, so uh, it's finally happening. Looking forward to it. And you know what? I should have hit record when you already got on because we, we started having this really intense discussion and it's, uh, it's, it's pretty relevant to what we're going to talk about today. So looking forward to it, man. Absolutely. All right. So let's dive in. Casey, I think this is the understatement of the month, right? That you are a content marketing expert <laughs> in every sense of the word. So you not only work for Active Campaign, which is a company that has about 185,000 customers across the globe, that, that number might have increased since the last time we spoke. And you also teach marketing at UCSD. So that's University of California, San Diego, for those of you that don't understand that acronym. For this conversation, going back to what we were saying earlier, let's focus on a topic that I think has become a big part. Not the only thing, but one big part of your professional mission. So how B2B companies can build owned assets like a newsletter and help it to perform. Let's kick off the conversation with this question. When it comes to building owned assets, where do you think most B2B companies fall flat and why? Yeah, it's a great question. I I think there's a couple major flaws and I think email has changed dramatically over the last decade. So I think one of the first major challenges is folks keep things too company centric. And really it's just speaking to their existing audience. So we'll maybe unpack and get a little bit into the importance of setting goals and having newsletters that are tailored to a very specific audience. But connecting to that problem of being too company-centric is that the content that is built isn't inherently shareable. And that is a very big problem because the name of the game with content today is around distribution, is around sharing ideas that can be proliferated by in other places, by partners, by customers. And if stuff stays too system agnostic, too company centric, you are going to suffer from that. The other major challenge that I see is that teams are not getting their time horizons right. So you go with this mission of, I'm going to launch this new newsletter. And then companies often a month, two months in might look and say, either the subscriber growth isn't sufficient, or we're not driving enough end revenue, and they pivot away. And really what needs to happen is for folks to have that clear goal, to have an understanding of what is the purpose of this email strategy? Is it around conversion? Is it around pipeline generation and new leads? And then setting up a timeline and setting up KPIs that make sense for that specific objective. Because one of the beauties of email 
is that it can serve both these purposes. I've seen firsthand an active campaign, an incredible amount of email campaigns that are bottom of the funnel and are driving conversions. A lot of direct revenue attached to email. But then there's the other side, which is about new lead generation. It's a very different type of content. It's a different expectation. And so if I was to start out with the two buckets of biggest problems of where people are falling flat, those are the two that I would highlight off the bat. Wow. You started that one off strong, man. Well done. <laughs> hey there, fellow entrepreneurs and B2B marketers. Before we dive back into the conversation, let me introduce you to a game changer in the lead generation arena, Lead Feeder. Now, we all know the struggle of identifying those elusive website visitors and turning them into valuable leads. But what if I told you there's a tool that not only promises, but delivers on supercharging your lead generation and sales efforts? Enter Lead Feeder. Imagine having the power to identify companies visiting your website, track their behavior in real time, and seamlessly integrate it all with your CRM. Lead Feeder is not just a tool. It's your secret weapon for efficient and targeted lead engagement. What sets Lead Feeder apart? It's the ability to provide detailed insights into visitor behavior, helping your sales team prioritize efforts and close deals faster. With customizable notifications, lead scoring, and GDPR compliance, Lead Feeder is changing the game. Ready to revolutionize your approach to leads and deals? Then head over to leadfeeder.com for your free demo today. That's L-E-A-D-F-E-E-D-E-R.com. Don't miss out on the future of successful lead generation with Lead Feeder. A couple of things there, Casey, and I think you, you brought up some really great points there. I think let's go back to the one about time factor, all right? Because you've, you've probably seen that more times than you care to count. I've seen it as well. Why do you think companies have such unrealistic expectations when it comes to time frame? And what I mean by that is, to your point, they release a newsletter out into the wild, and in two months they look at that, they look at the numbers and say, "Well, it's not performing." So why why do you think that is? Is that the pressure to deliver results? Is it a combination of different factors? What is it? I think part of this comes to the problem with expectations. So one of the challenges is you bring a bunch of content marketers into the room. And all the content marketers kind of feel the same way. We need more financing. We need longer timeframes. But I think it's important to understand the flip side of this, which is executives, uh, the CFO, these kind of folks are smart people too. So why is there pushback? I think it's important we don't just assume that these people are dumb. But we acknowledge that one of the problems is what you don't want to have happen is to go spend a year, two years, and you keep pumping all this energy into something and you see no end business results right? Nothing is attributable. Nothing is attached. So there has to be some sense of what is a the goal of this? Like, are we really looking at how many subscribers we can get? Or are we actually looking for how many sales we can get? Like, what are the metrics that are going to make sense for this goal? And those are going to be different if, if my focus is let me build pipeline, let me build topical authority, or how can I convert 20 more people that are already in my flow? And so the first problem, I think, is that there isn't that good expectation set up front. And so then people are kind of just choosing out of a hat. Oh, we went from zero to 480 subscribers. Eh, I don't know if that's going to be sufficient. So start with that clear expectation. Connect into that. Start thinking about attribution thoughtfully, meaning have direct attribution, be asking people on intake, how did you hear about us? Be trying to look very specifically at what are the highest performing emails in terms of things like, say, click or page views. 
right? What is getting the most replies? Like really be thoughtful about that. I think that can be really helpful. I won't go too far off on a tangent, but when I built the LinkedIn program at my company, one of the things that we did that I thought was really helpful is I said, as a starting point, I want my team to post about whatever they're passionate about, whatever they want to post about. I want to start completely open. But then what we started to do is we started to study each week how many views people were getting, how many inbound DMs that were actually related to business that people were getting, what partnerships were started, and we started to map it to the type of content. So instead of me walking in and just saying, this type of content wins, we took a data-driven approach where we said, actually, write about whatever you want, but now we're going to pick out these three types of content are getting the most views, the most inbound DMs. So how do we start to center the team more around that behavior? And also, the team was so much more inspired because A, they got to write about whatever they wanted initially. And then when we told them, I want you to shift gears a little bit, it wasn't just the company being like, you know, let me just kind of toe the line. It was data-driven. They could see it too, that this is the content that was performing the best. So it made complete sense. The reason I think that's relevant is email can act the same way. As you build these emails and you're testing different strategies, what subject lines are winning? What type of content is winning and actually driving results? And you're able to take a very data-driven approach there. Yeah, no, no, that's absolutely right. And um, I love how you brought up the topic of data-driven approach, and we're going to go back to that in a second. The follow-up question I had for you, Casey, was, and you you brought it up, it's almost like a keyword, pushback, right? So you've probably dealt with this many times before, but companies get, B2B marketers internally might get pushback for things like owned assets, for example. People don't see, uh, for instance, the value in having it, or or it, or it sounds like a lot of work. It's going to take too long to see a return on that. So what would you say to those folks out there that are listening to this saying, oh, we would love to put out a newsletter. I'm just worried we're going to get pushback for that. How, how should they address that issue? Yeah. So I'm going to start at the top again, just as kind of solidifying what I've said, sure. but just be really clear with whoever you're trying to sell. Is your focus to generate pipeline or is your focus to convert leads? Start there. Just ask them right. that simple question. Based on that, then I would basically paint a vision that was very different between those two. So if someone said, my focus is revenue, I would say phenomenal. So what I want to do is I want to start bringing in customer stories. I want to start bringing in use cases. I want to start bringing in very data-rich comparisons, not in the fluffy way that those are always done, which it's like not realistic, doesn't build any trust, these like matrices, that, but actual real rich conversation that fairly paints these. I would start going deep into all of those bottom of the funnel motions, right? On the flip side, if someone said to me, I want to generate eyes, I would take a very different approach. One example that I love, there was this boot company, I think it was like Solomon's or something. And what they started to do is they had a newsletter where each episode of the newsletter, each send of the newsletter was a customer's incredible epic journey. And that customer was wearing, you know, the boots, but it wasn't this dry, generic, like, let me send you a newsletter about what boot you can buy next. It was getting that affinity building where someone was able to read a story that independently was super interesting and was shareable and was like this almost like a, like a sports journalism piece. This person summiting this crazy mountain, going through all this adversity, super interesting content. And of course, they were wearing that specific type of boots. But that is a good example of something that can function very well at the top of the funnel. So 
I guess what I would say here is that newsletters have changed. What you need to sell internally to your organization is that the company updates plus new product releases, plus customer stories, plus new hire, you can't just have this amalgamation of everything stuffed into a newsletter. That will not work. So number one, we need to have a clear focus. And just to be clear, it is absolutely okay for you to have multiple newsletters and for you to divide and say, you know, I was working with a university that did an awesome job here. They were like, they had one newsletter that was talking about innovative stuff coming out of the university. They had another one that was talking about alumni doing interesting things and one about like sports. So absolutely feel free to have different ones for different purposes, but don't shove them all together. And, and the final kind of connective tissue that I would also say here is around that importance of clear expectations. One thing that is so important, and if you're taking something away, I hope that you go and look at your own newsletters and you do this. Have a clear, literally on intake expectation. We will be messaging you each Friday at 9 a.m. and you're going to get a use case about XYZ. That specific. You create that super clear expectation. Your engagement is going to go way up because people aren't guessing when they're going to hear from you next, right? And they know when they're going to get that email exactly what they should come to expect or be excited about. Whether it's a customer story and whether it's you know an exciting epic or whether it's how we went from zero to one million at my agency, whatever your focus is, they have that clear expectation. Fantastic, fantastic, absolutely love it. Talk to us about the importance of segmentation and personalization. Right, you touched on some of these things already, but when it comes yeah. to building own assets, what are some of the key things that B two B marketers need to keep in mind? I love that you asked this question because I think that there's this problem where everyone says personalization, personalization, segmentation. Yeah. And I can tell you, because I've been on the practitioner side for 10 plus years, yeah. half the companies that are espousing segmentation aren't even segmenting themselves. The majority of people getting out there and saying, personalization is so important, they're not even doing it themselves. So I think we need to start with what is the actual barrier to segmenting? And it's not the complexity, it's not any of those things. It's literally that people aren't gathering the data. You can't segment if you're not gathering the data. So the first thing that we have to kind of have a conversation about is where are you going to actually capture data that is usable to the customer? So we have to start there. One of the most common questions I get is folks say, well, Casey, should I segment on industry? Should I segment on company size? Should I segment on role? Like, I don't want to ask them a million questions, right? I think that's a totally fair, uh, a fair note. What I would say is you need to understand what is actually most relevant to the type of content you deliver. So for example, a 1,000 person B2B company might be more similar to a 1,000 person e-commerce company than a 1,000 person e-commerce company is to a 10 person e-commerce company. So in that case, if that variable, it's actually not industry, it's company size that's more relevant to their needs, then what you should do is you should ask the company size question because what you're going to deliver in the content is going to be more relevant to be divided by that. On the same note, if it's like, no, it really is industry because we're going to talk about fulfillment and shipping and all these things that just aren't relevant to the other side, then make it about industry. So the first, the first kind of litmus test I would be having is focus on what are you going to actually functionally change that is relevant to the customer, right? Based on that input. And then I think you should bring that up front and you should be asking that question on intake so that you can have that journey be more tailored. And 
when I think about personalization and segmentation, there's two buckets. There's what I call static and dynamic segmentation. So static is what we gather up front. It is industry, it is pain points, and that's what you can segment in much the way that I was describing. Dynamic segmentation is also important. So dynamic is what are they opening? What are they clicking? What are they engaging with? What pages are they visiting? And how do we say, look, if someone hasn't engaged with our content for three months, we should not treat that person the same as someone who engages every single week with what we're putting out. And so changing the tempos, changing the frequency of when we reach out to people and how we reach out to them based on those is super important. But if you aren't at a top level gathering the right information, then of course you're not going to segment because you don't have the info to do it in the right way. So that would be the, the, the kind of pillars of that. And one thing I'll leave folks with is I want you to think about the hierarchy of importance when it comes to email like this. Opens is the bottom of the barrel. That is the least reliable metric. After changes with Apple and others like open rates, Apple auto opens all the emails on every major ESP, which is inflated open rates by 10 plus percent. So clicks are better than opens. Page visits are better than clicks. And replies are better than page visits. So when you think about those four engagement metrics, replies are king. Replies are the very best thing that you can get. And so with that in mind, also start thinking about, can I ask targeted questions in my newsletters? Can I involve my audience in some sort of meaningful way? Not only will that be a proxy for true engagement and making sure this is not bot opens or even bot clicks, but these are real people engaging, but it also gives you that opportunity to be tailoring, to be modifying, to be learning about what people care most about. And the final cherry on the top is around deliverability. One of the major ways that inboxes decide what content hits into folders is based on replies. The people that wrote the algorithms were smart. And they said, people who send personal email to each other, to your family and friends, have an 80 plus percent reply rate. One of the easiest way to spot any kind of automated email is that the reply rate is like two, 3%. It's such an obvious signal that during the last modifications, they massively elevated reply rate as a metric for inbox placement. I have worked with dozens and dozens of brands that are not landing in promotions folders, even as their newsletter grows from 1,000, 5,000, 10,000 subs. And the secret to it is they have incredibly high reply rates, especially on the very first email that they send out. So as that final nugget for folks, in your heads, be thinking about that as you design out your email strategy. Casey, I think you inadvertently came up with the title of this uh, podcast episode, Replies Are King, right? There, there were so many things you said there that, that really resonated with me, but you're absolutely right. Like if people don't reply, there's so many other metrics to look at, but if they don't reply, then what's the point, right? But I wanted to go back to um, the data-driven approach because you, know, you spoke a lot, quite a bit about data um, in the past couple of minutes, but just going back to that, how important is this data-driven approach when you're building old assets? I would imagine that it, 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 it does have a high priority. Yeah, yeah. I think that you want to be able to make decisions as a company when you're building these assets based on reality. And to me, the data becomes what is reality. So again, going back to this side of as marketers, as people in content, we're asking for more budget, we're asking for more allowance. Connected to that, we need to show momentum in the areas that are meaningful. So data is our greatest ally 
to be able to be an advocate to show the impact of the work that we're doing, right? And so I think it's super important, like I kind of shared earlier in my LinkedIn example, that is what builds confidence within the executive team in my organization that we're not just throwing darts at the wall, we're being very calculative. Because a lot of times, if you say, write about whatever you want, companies get really nervous about that. They're like, well, what do you mean write about whatever you want? Why is someone writing about their dog? Why is that relevant? Well, the beautiful part about it is we look at the data. If that person who's writing about their dog, if they get 100,000 views and two inbound DMs about the company, then awesome, amazing. We, we can say, keep writing about your dog. If they don't, well, then the data showed that that wasn't something that had the kind of topical relevance to drive that momentum. And so I think when you're building an owned asset and you're trying to set that expectation and you're trying to get ad buy-in within the organization and build that advocacy, data is your greatest asset to help you there. Absolutely. All right. Talk to us about maybe like the top three to five, like recent trends that you've seen in content marketing, because like every other discipline um, that's evolved, right, in the past couple of years. So talk to us about some recent trends um, that B2B marketers should be aware of, specifically when it comes to building owned assets. Yeah, for sure. So I think one of them we've covered on quite a bit, which is just the importance yeah. of kind of specificity. Moving on past that, I think it's really important to have a conversation around trust. So often as marketers, we spend so much time around awareness and how do we grab eyes? How do we grab attention? But a really good example is if you have a subject line and man, that subject line drives so much curiosity because it's just so clever and you get people in there, but then actually they expect one thing and you give them something totally different. Sure, you might get some great open rates. You might get some great eyes, but you don't drive any actual action. Action comes from trust and trust is built with a couple things. It's built with specifics. It's built with context, right? Let's imagine that you're a company. Let's say you're trying to build an agency, right? And you're at $300,000 a year, brand new, just starting out. And you get an email that says how to go one, zero to 1 million for your agency. And here's the exact go-to-market pillars that we did. And here's a breakdown of the tools that we use. And you get really specific that is going to build an incredible amount of trust because the person looked at that and they're like, that's exactly what I need right now. I don't need the agency that went from 10 to 100 million, right? I don't need the story about getting your first 10 followers. That's the exact next step that I want. And you bring that trust forward. And so I think one of the things that I encourage folks to do, really spend some time unpacking statements. You know, it's, it's almost like website copy. If you say, we increased demos by 114%. Eh, to me, I'm like, that just feels like filler. But if you say this, over the last six months, we took the amount of demo bookings we had from 120 to 285. We actually hired two new AEs to take this new kind of volume. And here's kind of how we did it. You're adding those layers of specificity where I'm like, oh, they didn't just pull a number out of a hat. They're giving me real specifics that build the trust and confidence that that's an actual thing, right? And so one of the best things that you can do when you're designing content, you're trying to build trust, it to be really specific. The final pillar that I would say is we live in a time of short form content. We live in a time of fractured attention, right? So you absolutely need to make things as digestible, as skimmable, as accessible 
as possible. So a couple of very top line things. Do not have a ton of CTAs. Literally one to two CTAs in your email. Keep them focused. Number two, use bolded headlines that encapsulate exactly what you're going to talk about. Make it clear. I always call it the skim test. If someone spends two to three seconds, literally two to three seconds, just glancing at your email, what will catch their attention and want to make them read more? The third thing is have a summary at the top. And like a good example of this is a company called Mutiny. So Mutiny runs a newsletter and they have a summary and they say, we're going to talk about these six things. If you have a newsletter that's a little bit longer, having that summary at the top is another way that you make your content very skimmable because someone can go, nope, nope, nope. Oh yeah, point number four. That's actually something I'm really interested in. Boom, jump there. So if you do those three things, your content becomes digestible, you start to build trust, and you have that clear top line expectation, I think those those things are going to make your email strategy generate a lot more pipeline and revenue. Amazing. Thanks for sharing that. And I mean, you know, this is one of the key aspects of the show is providing the audience with actionable tips. And um, if I was going to ask you this question, Casey, because you've given us so much uh, up to this point in the conversation in terms of like what people can act upon. And these are most of the challenges. And this is what you can do to address those. But let's just say, for instance, there's somebody out there um, that's listening to this conversation that you and I are having, and they're facing this dilemma but they need to take action on it right away. How would you, you know, like just to summarize all the advice that you've given, like what are maybe some, like the top three things you'd tell them to do if they only had, if they only had one to two weeks, for example, to, to, to pull all this together? Yeah, for sure. So one of the things is executives and higher level buy-in love examples. So one of the great places to start is find examples of newsletters in industry that are doing well. And there's a lot of public information folks will share all the time because the people who run newsletters want to highlight the size of their newsletter and all these different things. So you can go out there and look at newsletters from top performing companies and use those as a blueprint, right? To say, hey, we're finding success with these different formats. Then underneath that, you set the clear expectation of what you're going to be focused on. And you give them that clear, concrete plan. And you say, look, over the course of the next quarter, or maybe two quarters, right? Our plan is to have a newsletter that's going to be going out every single week, and it's going to be talking about these specific topics. And then you set what are those leading indicators that you're going to be looking for. And again, these are different depending on the nature of what you're trying to accomplish. But let's say you're trying to build just that top of funnel. You might be saying, look, the the barometers that we're looking at to find whether the momentum of this is building in the right way is we're adding 300 subs per X period of time, right? Like, again, this is all variable, so I don't want to throw out just filler numbers and benchmarks. But the point is, when you now give them examples of folks that have done it right, you give them a clear plan of the goal and focus of this owned asset that you've built, and you give them a timeline of what it can become, I think that is incredibly powerful because these owned assets are slower moving. And so, like, one aspect of this is, as an owned asset grows, it can actually open up a lot of interesting things that people might not expect. For instance, you can advertise on top of your owned asset. You can use it as part of a partner exchange. You can use it as part of an account-based marketing strategy for a client that you want to land. You can have them on as a guest. There's all of these powerful things you can build, but 
oftentimes it takes time to get to these pieces. So you having that clear goal where, look, we're just trying to grow size and exposure from this window to this window. Then we're going to also try to use this potentially when we get to 10,000 subscribers, we can actually start advertising across this and it will be relevant. Like those, those pieces, if you do that and you have that clear plan, I think you'll get buy-in quickly and folks will give you that green light to move forward and, and start to run this. Whether that's a newsletter is what we've been talking about, but I think the same thing is true of a podcast or other owned assets that you might create. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thanks for that, man. You are, uh, those are basically the cliff notes of uh, what you need to do, right? For owned assets. <laughs> do people even use cliff notes anymore? I wonder, I'm probably, I'm, I'm sure it's a digital version of that now. I remember it from school. Yeah. That's a, yes. that's a good question. It's been, yeah. it's been a little bit. Right. It's, it's been a little bit. bit. It's been a hot minute aging myself here, but you know, it is what it is, right? Um, <laughs> the next question, my friend, we can go deep down a rabbit hole with this one metrics, right? Mm. But just give us some top level metrics because I know you've got a hundred thousand metrics out there that people are looking at. But what are, what are, again, linked to the previous question, what are the key ones that marketers should be looking at to get stuff off the ground now? Yeah, 100%. So the first is I want folks to remember that hierarchy that I gave people, which is that clicks are better than opens, page views are better than clicks, and replies are better than page views. That is what I would think about in terms of engagement metrics. So when you start anything, especially something that's top of funnel, you got to be talking about engagement metrics. Those are going to be a relevant part of the equation. So obviously, you're looking at subscriber growth. That's something that's going to be relevant to building any kind of owned asset, whether it's a newsletter or a podcast. But when you think about engagement, which is really going to be the hook if you add a bunch of subscribers, but you have a 9% open rate, obviously something's wrong. There's something missing there, right? And so you need to be looking at engagement metrics as part of that equation. And that's the four that I would start with. In terms of all these activities, if you start one that is about conversion, you're going to need to more quickly move to direct attribution of trial and paid. If you start something that's top of funnel, it might be a slightly slower build to that or the engagement metrics or the leading metrics, but then everything ultimately needs to culminate and come back to actual business generated, right? I mean, that is, I think the key, the time horizons can be different, but we still need to get there. So for that, I am a big fan of direct attribution as one piece of the puzzle. I don't think it's the whole piece of the puzzle. I do encourage, there's obviously lots of challenges that direct attribution has. It won't catch everyone. So it's one part of a strategy where you're also using UTMs inside of any links that you're putting inside of email. So you're having some, you know, being able to attribute revenue, for example, that comes specifically from these clicks. You can do that with UTMs and with tracking. So you also want to make sure that you're keeping an eye on that. And there's a lot of different systems that can help you do that. And so I don't want to go too down the rabbit hole of all the tools that you can use, but I would say combine direct attribution, which is just asking people with some sort of model, right? And again, at university, I teach the difference between time decay versus linear first touch, last touch. We could have an hour discussion just about attribution, but to keep it simple, be looking at potentially something like last touch attribution, as well as direct attribution. Those would be the two that I would start with from a direct revenue perspective. Fantastic. Fantastic. All right. Casey, I kind of get the feeling that you've been on your soapbox the whole time. You know, we've been having this conversation, but please just stay up there a while longer. <laughs> what is a status quo on this specific topic of owned assets, right? So what is a status quo that you passionately disagree with? 
and why? There's a few that I fight battles around. So So I'll I'll say one is there is a mentality around path of least resistance when it comes to marketing in general. They say only ask for email, don't ask additional questions, don't create additional barriers, right? And this goes across to so many different aspects of the marketing journey. And I actually disagree with that. I think we need to double down on the best experience for high intent folks. I think that we have the power now with technology to create these personalized, these segmented, these really curated experiences. And I think ultimately, what we care about is that end result. And so I think it's a mistake. Some folks might say, well, if I add this additional question or I add these additional barriers, instead of a 1,000 leads, maybe I get 700. And I say, I don't care whether it's 700 or 1,000, how many customers at the end of the day, how much actual real business at the end of the day. And if that's 20% higher, even though we have 300 less leads, to me, I think those 300 leads, they don't have high intent. They're not at that stage. Maybe we bring them in later, but they're not there now. And so I've fought this battle with marketing leaders and with folks for such a long time that are really pushing for that path of least resistance. But I've spent a lot of time in the trenches. I've looked at a lot of data and I have conviction that that data paints a picture that asking a couple questions to gain specificity can be a huge benefit for a brand. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I mean, you could almost say that it's kind of human nature, right? Let, let's be non-confrontational. Let's avoid, let's avoid any potential friction. But I think it's to your point, right? It kind of defeats the objective of the exercise or you're just adding in like extra layers in terms of um, your marketing efforts, right? Like, so you only capture a certain amount of data, but that doesn't help you to get over that hill, right? Sorry, I'm oversimplifying everything that you've just said, but like... <laughs> no, I think, that, yeah. I think that, that encapsulates it perfectly. Yeah. All right, Casey. So here comes the bonus question. And this is a new one on the show, but like, You've got quite a bit of experience, uh, you know, teaching at the university and you're teaching marketing at UCSD. So let's just say that could be this show. It could be any other show. Somebody listened to you or to the conversation that you and I had or you had with somebody else in another podcast. And they give you a call maybe after this interview and they, they say, hey, Casey, you know what? You really know what you're talking about. I love your stuff. And I am going to give you money and a plane ticket that you can go and teach marketing anywhere in the world, right? Wherever you want. So the question is, if you were given that opportunity to teach your marketing class at any institution in the world, where would you go and why? Mm, great question. So I think my first, the first thing that jumps mm-hmm. to mind um, yeah. is Stanford. And okay. I'm going to get some serious heat for this because I am from <laughs> Berkeley. Okay. The arch nemesis of Stanford. And of so course, we were, yeah. you know, drilled into uh, as kids. But the reason I say Stanford is specifically because of the depth within that institution around entrepreneurialism. And this is something that I've been passionate about throughout my entire life and career. I focused on working with small businesses. Mm-hmm. I, I come from a family. My dad ran a business. My grandpa ran a business. My cousins ran businesses. And so I've seen this entrepreneurial energy yes. growing up as a kid. Yeah. And I genuinely find it incredibly exciting for folks to take that passion, to take that interest and translate it into something that they can own and have kind of possession of in the world. And so I love entrepreneurship. And I think that if I was speaking at a program 
like the MBA program at Stanford, which is kind of known as the number one in the world around entrepreneurship specifically, mm-hmm. I would have that platform um, to be able to kind of amplify and, and get more out there. So I think that would be really exciting. And as just a, a small kind of aside or note, since we last chatted, I actually am teaching a demand creation course through the Stanford Extension. Wow. So I'm, not, I'm not yet on the inside as a tenured professor, but I'm going to be teaching starting in April. It's going to run eight weeks, and it's around how to think about demand creation. Um, and I am going to be doing that with Stanford. So I'm kind of starting Fantastic. to get a little bit started in that direction. That's amazing. Congratulations. All right. Thank you. So, so you got, yeah, you could uh, you, even maybe just your the virtual foot in the door, right? So yeah, exactly, exactly. It's yeah. uh, it's yeah. uh, just like UCSD. It's going to be taught online, um, right. so not on the inside yet. It's always mm-hmm. a little bit of a challenge when it comes to academia yes. if you don't have a PhD and you don't have that doctoral uh, kind of experience to get in on a professorship. But to give credit to UCSD and to Stanford and to other universities that have been reaching out. There's been this huge appetite that I've seen recently for practitioners. Mm. And so I think it's really cool that the university is realizing, hey, these theory components are awesome, but we also need to bring folks that are doing these things in yeah, practice right, right now. Yeah. Um, and they're starting to do more of that. So I think that's awesome. Fantastic. Fantastic. Casey, this has been such a great conversation. I mean, we could we could have gone on for another five or six hours, but you know, in the interest of time, thank you once again for coming on the show to yourself and how folks out there can get in touch with you yeah yeah absolutely so uh yeah again my name is is casey i've been for kind of 12 plus years working in the martech space working with email marketing marketing automation owned assets as we now yeah. call it um in the kind of content space and if folks have any questions you can send me an email chill at activecampaign.com my name is casey hill so it's just i'm chill at wherever chill. i work yeah um so chill at Active Campaign. Active Campaign is a marketing automation and CRM platform. So that's where I work. That's my day job. Um, and then you can also follow me on LinkedIn. I talk about a lot of these concepts. I talk about firsthand experiences of what I'm learning, running experiments in the kind of organic growth world all the time. Um, and so Casey Hill, you can go find me on uh, LinkedIn and follow some of the insights there as well. Fantastic. Fantastic. Once again, Casey, this has been an incredible conversation. Thanks again for your time. Take care, stay safe, and talk to you soon. Thanks, Jason. All right, bye for now. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the B2B Marketers on a Mission podcast. To learn more about what we do here at Einblick, please visit our website at www.einblick.co and be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast player.